You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Hey there, Monster Talkers. In case you missed the news, like so many of you out there, I caught COVID. I've been recovering, but it's been pretty nasty. To cover for content, we're going to be playing some of our YouTube backlog into our regular feed. The episode you're about to hear is part of our Young series that we're calling Debased on a True Story, where we take a look at classic horror movies alleged to be inspired by true events or based on true events. For our first effort, we're taking a look at the 1977 Wes Craven film, The Hills Have Eyes. First, we'll take a look at the movie and the story it portrays, and then we'll dig into the strange legend that Wes Craven says he was inspired by, that of the family of cannibals from Scotland, the clan of Sawney Bean. If you'd like to hear this episode with pictures, all of our Debased on a True Story episodes are available at youtube.com forward slash monster talk. Now, the audio quality on this first one isn't up to our usual standards, but I'm working on getting better source files for future conversions from YouTube. Unfortunately, YouTube compresses our audio and makes it sound a little bit like an AM radio, so hopefully we can sort that out for upcoming episodes. You'll be hearing the voices of myself, Blake Smith, our regular co-host Karen Stolzno, and her husband Matt Baxter on these episodes. And check out the show notes for lots of reading about the movies and the legends behind the movies. Monster Dog. All right, we are live. Welcome again to Monster Talk Live. I'm Blake Smith. Good morning, or good evening, or good night. <laughs> I'm Karen Stolzner. You may be. 
Yeah. Exactly. So let's see here. I'm going to. And we've got uh, we've got Matt Baxter joining us again for another episode of Based on a True Story, which is our current series that we're working on. That's right. We're doing uh, a series of stories about movies and the tie-ins to the real-life stories that they are based on. I say real-life with quotation marks because, first of all, we... we <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more folklore than... Yeah, than I keep making that. Video. Sorry about that. Sorry. <laughs> Tonight, we're looking at The Hills Have Eyes, uh, the movie by Wes Craven. And we'll be talking about... Lots of, lots of spoilers. This will be absolutely spoiler-ridden. It'll be fun. So... <laughs> You can, uh, again, uh, be sure to like and subscribe to this video, and you can follow us on Patreon and support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. And let's just sort of dive right into it, if you don't mind. I think this uh, movie uh, is Wes Craven's follow-up to uh, The uh, Last House on the Left, I think. Uh, This is 1977. Uh, It was uh, directed by Wes Craven. It's called The Hills Have Eyes. It tells the harrowing story of a typical middle American middle-class family and their run-in with a band of inbred mutant cannibal desert bandits in a remote irradiated bombing range in Arizona. The Carter family is led by retired cop patriarch Big Bob Carter and their very religious mom, Ethel Carter, and they're celebrating their anniversary by visiting an abandoned silver mine that they got as a gift. They're stopping there on their way to Los Angeles. Uh, Terrible spoiler. They don't make it to Los Angeles. They're accompanied by their daughter, Lynn, and her husband, Doug, and their baby, Katie, and also the Carter's teen kids, Brenda and Bobby. And on the other side of this family feud are the Cannibal Mutant family, headed up by Papa Jupiter, his adorable wife, who's known only as Mama, and their children, Mars, Pluto, Mercury, and their daughter, Ruby. And the Cannibal Clan has been surviving out here in this horrible wasteland by robbery, murder, and cannibalism. And this has led to poor social skills and, I have to say, very poor fashion choices. The Hills Have Eyes is a story about what happens when you push an average family too far. It is brutal. It's mean. It's sometimes exciting and it's frequently offensive. But we're going to talk about it tonight because Wes Craven says he was inspired to write it by the true story of a Scottish cannibal clan led by a man named Sonny Bean. All right. And the average average family pushed too far? I don't know. Well, they, they had a, you know, so Bob's a retired cop and... uh like you do for your anniversary, you take your whole family and throw them in a camper and drive across the desert. That's what you do. So, yep, yeah, pretty good, good idea. You know, and, and thing is, is it? Yeah, supposedly they had this uh, old silver mine or something that was yeah. uh, they owned in the family or something. I guess but- they, like, they seemed old, but I think they're only supposed to be in their fifties. Which okay, whatever. Confusing. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure if the eldest daughter, if that was uh, a sibling to the mother. I, I, I got confused throughout. So yeah, it, they were supposed to be like it's a, yeah. <laughs> it, it, the casting's a little weird. I mean, like the, the people are a little older than they seem in some cases, a little younger in others. The uh, mm. the guy who played Big Bob, he looked like he was in his mid sixties or seventies or something, early seventies. But I think he yeah, was only in his fifties. I think he, I yeah. thought he was the grandfather of the the team. Yeah, he, he yeah, aged out early. Bless his heart. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was your first oh, time to see it, right, Karen? It was my first time. Uh, I know that Matt hadn't seen it before either, or he'd seen one of the remakes or one of the sequels. And uh, I, there are some movies that he refuses to watch, like this and Deliverance. So I don't want to. I had, 
What? He doesn't want to see that. And so, yeah, I've never seen it. And Do not so, squeal like a pig, okay? I, I, I don't, I don't. <laughs> it was filmed in Georgia. It's a, it's a Georgia classic. <laughs> so, yeah, this is my first time, and uh, and it's very much of its time. We, we it is budget. <laughs> yes, yeah. We, yeah, I mean, what was the budget for the movie? It was a couple hundred thousand dollars? I think it was 350 something along those lines, yeah. And they had to make it within a short time frame as well. Yeah. Didn't they? So, yeah, it, it's certainly, I mean, for its time, it's it's interesting and the script is interesting and the fact that they came up with it so quickly is impressive. It feels very much like a it's an indie classic in the sense that made on a low budget, made a good return on the budget. I mean, it's not... Mm-hmm. Wes Craven's most famous film by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Wes came from a very religious family, and I think a lot of his early movies are very much uh, sort of pushing back on that. In fact, if you look at the family itself, it's a the mom's very religious. They pray before doing yeah. stuff. And I get the impression that him pushing back against uh, the sort of strictures, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But it's also a low-budget movie. Uh, it seems to be heavily influenced by the success of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think his okay. first movie, uh, The Last House on the Left, is uh, basically a rape revenge story. Yeah. And uh, it's hard to watch, but it's it's a well put together movie. But, but if you know, it's 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 disturbing. And this one, I, I think he was reluctant to go back into the horror film because he wanted to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. But this one made enough money to keep him going. And he got a really good established name as a director. And, of course, eventually ends up making, what's that one where the people shouldn't go to sleep? It has the Fred Krueger guy. That's the one. Yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was just talking with Sophie about that before we we started doing this. And she was complaining because she's seen all the classics, she said. I've seen all the classics, Dad, but I haven't seen (laughs) Nightmare on Elm Street. And she went through a list. I was like, holy crap, did we let you watch that one? Did we let you watch that one? (laughs) Apparently, we're terrible parents, but I'll make sure she gets this classic, too. Well, Blade was here kind of sitting with us while we were watching it. And what's happening? What's that? And (laughs) Blade liked the changeling better. Oh, okay. (laughs) 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 I mean... It's not as it's kind of like Texas Chainsaw. It's it's more brutal in your memory than it is in reality. Like it's they don't actually show as much. Although we honestly, also, I think they show more here, right? We also uh, watched a, a documentary with Wes Craven and all of the actors, and I think in we we watched that first and then watched the movie. And I think in watching the movie, I thought it wasn't as graphic or brutal as the way that they described it. Yeah, I, I think in the at the time it would have come across as very very brutal. I mean, it feels seven for sure. Yeah, it, it's not quite a snuff film, but it's pretty dark. I mean, well, yeah. and didn't they receive a, an X rating initially, and then I think they had to cut it back and cut it back and edit it to the point where they could get a. An they R did, rating. they did, and you can kind of tell at some places where it was edited really heavily. I guess uh, again, this is not a spoiler free episode, so if you have not seen this film and you don't want ruination, here it comes. So. You've been warned. Well, so, the, ru- the ruination may come from actually seeing the film. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's you could probably shoot a better looking film on an iPhone at this point. That's true, right? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, they, they, I, as a creative person, I'm always leaning towards rooting for the filmmakers. Like, yeah, I know what they were trying to do, right? Right. And I feel like this was a, a really strong effort. And it's it got, it was. It's got um it's like the first big film with Dee Wallace in it. And then she goes on to become 
I got, I got some slides on her in a second. Okay, yeah, yeah okay, um, yeah. But it's it's an interesting movie, and the, the first name for it was actually Blood Relations, which I think is a great name, and yeah. I, it's a pity they couldn't keep that. Uh, you know, The Hills Have Eyes is spooky and, and creepy, but I, I kind of like the, uh, the play on words with Blood Relations. That's a fun yeah. one. But yeah, it's I don't I don't say about I'm I'm not a fan of the slasher genre genre as much as I am the paranormal horror Mm -hmm. type movie. Uh, But I will say that that a lot of these B ones are fun in the same sense that you were talking about, Blake, with the wanting to kind of root for these guys, you know, root for the the filmmakers because they are putting more passion into these low budget things than a lot of these filmmakers that have all the money. Yes, 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 and exactly. That's a great aspect to it. And they do get some interesting actors as well. Now, of course, this picture of Michael Berryman is from the second movie, but it's still a great photo. I absolutely love it. And the thing about Michael Berryman is he is, he's got this iconic face. A lot of it is from birth. He was a, a preemie, premature birth. And so his his head's a little misformed and, and he's has no body hair, so no eyebrows or anything. So he's just a strange looking guy, but you've actually uh, met him, haven't you, Matt? You've, you've I, seen I did. I did meet him. Yeah, he's he's one of my my favorite celebrities, celebrity meetings that I've ever had because he is the nicest guy on earth. And he never heard anybody he's say anything. Yeah, he always yeah. is described as one of the nicest people. And I saw him on Joe Bob Briggs did a, a, a coverage of this movie, and and he was talking about Barry, Barry Moe was talking about. That his uh, he was actually part of the uh, I guess atomic age, and that his father had been exposed to atomic bomb testing, so he was um, or a, a bomb explosion, and was that was probably what caused his birth defects. But he's moved on and done great things with his life, and avid outdoorsman, big pet supporter. He's just an amazing guy, and everybody says it. If you go to Horkovich and meet him, he's just absolutely great. Uh, yeah, and, and you know he's, he's a um, an art history got our degree in art history, which is interesting. But his work ethic is amazing, and uh, I met him on the same night that I actually met Douglas Tate. Um, oh, nice! Yeah, we and and Eileen Dietz from The Exorcist nice. and uh, Jonathan Breck from uh, Jeepers Creepers. He was the creeper. We all uh, we all went out to a, a haunted house that night, and you know we took him out for a ride in our our bus, and uh, it was a great time doing it but michael berryman wasn't able to go with it so i got to sit down and just talk with him for a little while before i took the rest of the guys out for the the haunted house and and he was just fantastic you know when when asked what uh you know what does he ultimately want to do with his career he said i want to win the lottery and then be a philanthropist (laughs) nice yeah he just wants to you know make sure that everybody can eat and everybody's taken care of and and, uh, he's just a beautiful man he really is but uh the way he was portrayed in the movie though well, yeah, <laughs> we'll talk about that. But I think it's funny because he ends up on the poster that they offered him. They like, said, you know, would you like to be on the poster? And as he says, that was a million dollars worth of publicity. It's led to every other thing he's done. Now, this this was not his first film. He was in right. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. And yes. I can't think of the other one. But he, was in, he was in other stuff before this. But mm-hmm. but wow. Oh, Doc Savage. Yeah, I think it was. It, he told a story on yes. uh, Joe Bob about like uh, he, yeah. His first uh, job was with Doc Savage. And so, yeah, yeah he, he was a Boy Scout. He's done lots of stuff, like say, with the uh, animal support. And uh, just a great guy. But but his photo on the box and the poster. Iconic. Absolutely eye-grabbing. you just like, what's this movie? You know, like, you know. And, and so way to turn, you know, what could be a real 
problem into an asset. I mean, just wonderful. Like, you know, I mean, I think it would be a great world. Like, I think I've mentioned before, my mom was burned in college. So she's like 70% of her body at third degree burn. So she's heavily scarred. And yeah, so, so, so all my life I've been like, you know, I grew up with someone who's very scarred and I always just knew how debilitating that could be to your self-esteem to have like some kind of difference, something different about you. And I always just try to ignore that stuff, but not everybody can. It's hard sometimes. And I just, I, I love the way Berryman's taking what could be, uh, you know, the kind of thing. That he's able able. Or something yeah, yeah. Like he's great. I love it. Such a, such, uh, he's inspirational. Well, I think even yeah. in the movie, yeah. I, I think you almost have a sense of empathy. For yes. He, he's like not he's the big bad. Yes. He's the yeah. outsider. He's, yeah, I mean, you know, he's kind of trying to fit in with the rest of them. Yes. Uh, he's yes. trying to do their bidding and prove that he's a man. And uh, I, I mean, it, it just seems to me like he, you know, could almost defect to the other side if given a chance, like Ruby. Like, like Ruby, yeah. <laughs> yep. He's trying to impress his brothers, trying to impress his father, and not succeeding very well. Yeah. So I've never yeah. seen the second one because I heard such terrible things about it. Yeah, well, that's the, the, the funny thing here is this quote, the following film is based on fact. They showed that at the start. <laughs> yeah, they showed that at the start of the second film, which is interesting because I think that the only movie that really claims to be based on a, a true story is the first one. So it's kind of odd that they would have that at the beginning of the second one. But, mm-hmm. uh, but, but you know, it still makes a good screen grab. Now, we were talking about D. Wallace. Yes. Um, D. Wallace uh, was a surprise. I know D. Wallace mostly from, well, I think America knows her mostly from uh, her as the mother in E.T. And then, uh, but personally, I loved her in Cujo. She was the mother in Cujo. Yes. And uh, that was, that was my favorite. That's a very scary movie, Matthew. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, definitely, definitely interesting to see her in this movie and kind of get her career launched this way as well. Um, yeah, she really but, credited Wes Craven in the documentary that she saw. She said that that really was a foot in the door for her and, and her career took off after that. Absolutely. Should we explain that joke or just let it ride? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think another interesting thing, too, from, from watching the documentary, we really learned a lot from that, just behind the scenes things. And though, even though we're talking about, oh, this might not be the best movie, this is very, it's a classic, but it's very much of its own time. It seems like these actors worked really hard for this movie. The, the working conditions were absolutely dreadful. They were working out in, in what was it, 115 degrees Fahrenheit day. In the day right, 115 or so in the day and 30 and at night. night. It was, you know, brutal, cold desert winds. And it just seems like they didn't have enough to eat. There was absolutely nothing out there. They were staying in a shabby hotel. So it seems like they really put up with a lot to do this film and that a lot of them just wanted to uh, to do it to work with uh, Wes Craven rather than necessarily to work for that film. They didn't think the script was very good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It sounds like they're pretty down on it. Uh, I, I, obviously, over time, you know what? As we talk about this, we're going to get to the Sonny Bean stuff, but but mm-hmm. we will uh, – there's, we did a lot of research for this, and we'll put a bunch of links in the show notes when this goes up to explain where we got our material from, especially around the Saudi Bean stuff. But mm-hmm. I did read uh, some pretty cool uh, old issues of Fangoria about this, and they had some great yep. details in there as well. So, so yeah, so we got the we got the Carter family here, and there's there's six of them, and uh, they're kind of a mirror of the cannibals, exactly. Um, which really we only got to see 
in in action uh, four of them. Uh, but there was Mama, and there was also Mercury, who we basically saw mostly in silhouette. But that was actually the producer that was uh, doing a cameo as Mercury. So you know, up in the uh, up in the corner here, we have uh, Jupiter, who's the the dad. Uh, and, and it was interesting. Uh, I did notice that throughout the movie, see, because his father smashed him in the face and split his face open like that. Yep. But uh, the, his scars did kind of come and go. Uh, <laughs> they do. They were peeling, they were peeling <laughs> off a bit too. Yeah. There was like, yeah, sometimes when the nose was kind of falling off. and yeah. uh, But I suppose with that heat and the sweat, that would be a problem. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And then we have uh, Mars. Yeah, he was uh, uh, interesting with the, the sharpened teeth and the, the, yeah. the scare wig. And then we have uh, good old uh, Pluto, Michael Berryman. And then uh, Ruby is the uh, the youngest and and the one who uh, ends up switching sides. But, yeah, I already uh, had a few people ask, you know, Jupiter and Pluto, Ruby, what? Yeah, you know it's weird they didn't plan it. Ah. <laughs> Take a drink, everyone. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, all right, that was a good one. But uh, yeah, so it's 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 an interesting movie, and they they talk about how. And I always wonder, I always wonder about this because the critics start talking about how, you know, the, what the writer, you know, Wes Craven was going for was showing the two opposite sides, you know, with six, six here being uh, on the good side, six here being on the bad side and, you know, first world and third world and all this different kind of stuff. But I wonder if any of that is actually true when he's forced to write something over a weekend. If he's really putting that kind of thought into it, and then afterwards, you know, you can post it, you know, that, uh, yeah, that, oh, this is what I was thinking, of course. It was, you know, as as a former English major myself, it it feels like the kind of stuff that you'd go into, (laughs) or it's like putting the die in dichotomy. It's like, but I, it, it even goes down to the dogs. You've got Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and yeah, the Beast, yeah. yeah. Which is, again, this, I mean, on the one sense, it's a fairy tale. But on the other sense, it's, you've got this dichotomy between Beauty and the Beast. And which one turns out to be more useful? The Beast. I would say, I would say Beast. <laughs> <laughs> the one who survives anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's not yeah. about the score. It's about who's winning at the end, right? And I think things like yeah. that were, were pretty shocking for the time, too, when you see that gory scene with Beauty. I mean, we don't know exactly what what happened to her, but I mean, she was obviously killed. But just right, the right. scene where they showed the dog with the entrails was pretty. Yeah, cool. which is one of those uh, bits of trivia that apparently oh, that was a yeah. real dead dog, you know. Yeah. So they didn't kill their dogs, but they did somehow obtain a dead dog. So yeah, yeah, that was that's a pretty gruesome fact that there was but the um, reality the, the beast was played by the same German Shepherd that was uh, the bionic dog on the uh, Bionic Woman. So, oh, okay. Yeah, it's got, oh, yeah. he's, he's kind of a superstar. I mean, yeah, he's very well. I mean, obviously, for all the amazing stuff he does in the movie, because I mean, oh, toward, at the end as well. I mean, yeah, it's like, I mean, kind of like, the hero, really. Yeah, he's totally the hero. He's <laughs> definitely one of the most proactive members of the Carter clan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he knew yeah. what was going on from stage one. Like, he had it. So, well, I think it's also interesting, you know, when you, you break down this whole. Um, how all oh, these families, you know, in the end are actually kind of the same because this civilized family ends up having to be just as brutal, you know, in the end. And I, I don't know how much I, I really agree with that, because I think, you know, that's the difference between a uh, a, a wolf and, uh, and a, a rabbit. You know, they, they both run, but one's running for a meal and one's running for his life. Yeah. 
And that's that's kind of what we have here. So these yeah, people are having to defend themselves. Yeah. yeah. And so I don't know that I necessarily agree that they're the same, you know, in the end, because as brutal as the, the guy had to be killing them in the end, he was getting revenge and he was in, in defense of, of everything. For his, wife here. And for the rest of his family and for his baby being stolen. Yeah. So I, I think it's a little different because, you know, the, the cannibal family was a little more gleeful in oh, their yeah, yeah, yeah. murdering, I mean, you know. Although I hear that they had to cut quite a bit out of the brutal... The murder at the end. Yeah. yeah. Because, because he enjoyed it too much. He enjoyed it too much. It's like, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you remember yeah. the old movie code stuff about the good guys, you know, the bad guys never can win, right? There always has to be some sort of moral lesson. And I, right. this was after that code was gone, as far as I know, but still, it sort of feels like that. Uh, you still have to get past the MPAA if you want to get on the uh, the rating system. Exactly. Exactly. Well, someone's commented oh. uh, in a just a, the sidebar and asked why it's, it's it's harder to see dead dogs in movies than people. And I think in this movie that was because their their blood was orange, <laughs> and not red. So it wasn't very convincing. That's a great call out. That's a great call out. <laughs> yeah. The blood well, was very unconvincing. Even with the the mother, you know, when she dies, and then they put her out as a decoy. I mean. Don't you think she was on the verge of blinking? <laughs> well, in, in the distance, she dead. wants her heart. Wants her yeah, heart. In, in the distance, she looked great. Like, a lot of times, they'll do that with a freeze frame, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they did. They didn't here, you know. They they so I mean, they had the same problem with Psycho, where they were trying to keep uh, Janet Lee from moving her eyes or blinking. They did. They fixed that with a freeze frame. But yeah, it, yeah, because she looked really dead, you know, from the distance, you know, the makeup and everything. She looked dead, and it was really well done. But as soon as they zoomed in on her face, it was like. You know, too much makeup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so yeah, it was. Oh well, oh well. Uh, and uh, like we were saying, this is supposedly based on fact. Uh, yeah. And and it's interesting because the the facts that it it it's based on uh, two things: family of cannibals living in a cave. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's basically it. And that's when we get into the folklore of Sonny Bean. We did see with the the interview with Wes Craven where he said that he was inspired. Uh, I think he and uh, him and the producer, I can't remember his name, Peter. Yeah. It was Locke. Peter Locke. Locke. Peter Locke. Yep, right. you got it. And so they they drove out uh, into the desert and they were trying to get some inspiration for the film. And uh, so I don't know how he actually came across that story. I don't remember if he he mentioned how it come across that story. I, I'd heard that he while he was doing research for what to write about that that came up. But it's it's also interesting. I mean. There are a lot of parallels between The Hills Have Eyes and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and some pretty strong, like, literal connections. Like, the prop master on, on both films was the same uh, guy. And some of the props, therefore, are the same in both films. But when I think those two films end up in, ended up inspiring The House of a Thousand Corpses and, and uh, various other ones. Oh, they're very, yeah, we'll be coming back to, to Texas Chainsaw because that falls into the Ed Gein stuff as well. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, it's a very, um, you wouldn't see an immediate connection, I think. Uh, between yeah, but, but like you do have a, a family that is cannibalistic and killing people in a rural setting. And uh, I would say that the protagonists would not be considered uh, universally likable. There, there's, there's a lot going on. You got, they kind of drive into a scenario where they really have no business and, uh, horrific events or hilarity ensues so i i mean there are a lot of parallels so but but 
But basically, from hilarity in Sony Bean. (laughs) There's not. No, not really. No, it's not. It's not that funny of a story. Uh, But but it is an interesting story. We'll we'll sort of dig into it here. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti, and I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So uh, when we started this idea of doing these debates on true stories, I expected that we would find some of the stories were only partially true or had been inflated. And this is one that I, I mean, to be honest, I fully expected this was a somewhat true story that had gotten grossly inflated. However, everything I've read in my research suggests this story, oh, spoilers, this story is entirely made up. And it's really interesting in how it's made up, or I found it really Mm -hmm. interesting, so... Yeah, I think we've got we've got some different perspectives on this, so we'll we'll chat and share our views. Yeah, so a lot of the work that or a lot of the things I read concur with a full, an article in Folklore Journal. There's an article called "Sonny Being the Scottish Cannibal," which was published in 1997, and that is by Sandy Hobbs and David Cornwell. And so I'll be pulling some details out of that. And I mean, there's some good stuff in. I found something in. Uh, 40 in times and obviously the the wikipedia is not terrible but that's but it, you know it, I, I found a lot of different information well, i so, think a lot of sources take it as a given though that this character existed it's interesting isn't it i so the sandy hobbs and david cornwell they they tried to track it down to like its earliest source and the first source they were able to find was a, a, a book called The Lives and Actions of the Most Famous Highwaymen by a pseudonym of Captain Charles Johnson. And there were some questions about who that was. And there were uh, four other books around the same time 
but they all seem to pull back from that. So that was the earliest one they were able to track down. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we want to kind of talk through the story of Sonny Bean and what he was supposed yeah. to have done? Um, so, yeah, I mean, basically, and I, I've done a, a bunch of uh, looking into this. Supposedly, this this guy, Alexander Bean, was uh, kind of a uh, he was he was a rough kid. And his his uh, dad was a ditch digger, basically. And uh, he didn't want to go into the family business for some reason. But uh, that, that really made him uh, yeah, yeah, made him appear to be a real layabout and everything. So he hooked up with this equally vicious woman. Uh, nothing was mentioned about him being vicious before, but suddenly now this equally vicious woman, Black Agnes, uh, they hooked up and took off and, and uh, kind of made the, their the way. Mama. Yeah, mama. Yeah, mama. They, they made their way across Scotland and uh, started holding up in this cave and just were robbing people uh, that came by. And then they, you know, realized that food would be good as well. So they started eating these people as well. Like you and, do. Yeah. 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 You got to do what you got to do. Say, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Can, uh, I throw a bit, can I throw a bit of nerdery in here? A little, little nerdy. So sure. I, the, uh-huh. when I was doing the research, they, one of the things that comes up in these stories is his parents were hedgers and ditchers, but they didn't, he didn't like that work and he ran away. Mm-hmm. And I, I, Really had a hard time finding out what hedgers and ditchers meant, but it came up a lot in like English stuff in the 1920s. But I finally tracked something down um, from a book called Jane Austen's Name, which is like an annotated look at the contextual details of the work of Jane Austen. And they had this excerpt I wanted to read, which says, Hedges had provided man-made boundaries even in prehistoric Britain and emerge into history in legal documents. References to hedgerows and Anglo-Saxon charters are abundant, with the hedges frequently being employed as boundary markers. In Austin's time, the hedgerow was an important working part of the human landscape. Digging drainage ditches and planting hedges was among the hardest labor of the poorest paid rural laborers, hedgers and ditchers. We have to imagine Jane Austen's handmade landscape as worked by human beings creating and maintaining a visible functional boundary. So I thought that was pretty cool because I... I really I didn't know what hedges, the hell it meant. I was thinking of a hedgerow, so. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yes. I didn't really it's think about how they got there. Another job of time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, so what, one you, of the what first... era are we talking about too? Because I'm not sure that we've talked about the century. The 1500, 1500s. Yeah. Uh, somewhere between the 15 and 1600s because they don't actually give it a real solid date. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, all it's, we know is it's James I's rule of Scotland which was from, uh, I'd have to go back and look, you know. But he was in the 17th century, so. Yeah, well. 17th century. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I can get it uh, right here. I can tell you exactly that, uh, yeah, it was uh, from 1567 to 1603, basically. Uh, okay, was yeah. So it's, it's right in that time period. And uh, the, the, the interesting thing is I first found the, the story of him in the Newgate calendar. And I don't know if the Newgate calendar is before what you found, uh, Blake, or if it's, if it's after. But that was the first reference that I could find. I don't know. Let me look it up. And the Newgate calendar uh, was an interesting book because um, as well as ones that, like the Bible, was in almost everyone's home. And it was given to children or read to children as a bit of a cautionary tale on how not to behave. And so it is full of these stories of, of terrible, horrible things. But it was published, and there's actually quite a few publications that are also called the Newgate Calendar. But this main one 
was uh, between 1750 and 1850. So within that hundred uh, years, there yeah, was like pretty, pretty close. Like a, bunch bunch of, um, a bunch of issues. So yeah, a hundred year, 200 years afterwards. Was um, this uh, an English publication? Or? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. In London. Yeah. And then the, the, the book that I was talking about was from 1730. So yeah, not, not terribly far from each other. Yeah. Yeah. So either way, we're looking at almost a 200 year possibly difference between when it supposedly happened compared to when it was published. It's kind um, of like the so, Bible. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that in itself kind of, you know, doesn't lend it a whole lot of reality. Um, credibility. But, uh, but yeah, so anyway, uh, you, you've got, you know, Sonny being getting into this cave with this woman, and then they start, uh, you know, procreating. And eating food, so they're killing people and eating them, and it, it goes on and on. And they're killing like up over a thousand people, you know, uh, uh, by the end of it. Yes, yeah. yes. How much could that? You know, that's a lot of people. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of people, and uh, so it's it's an interesting thing. In fact, trying to find the cave itself. Well, that is, that's an interesting like point. Fine. So the, the, a thousand people are supposed to have gone missing, or, or you know, and according to the story because they go missing on trips they're travelers traveling from various things and they go missing innkeepers are allegedly convicted on hearsay for yes. these deaths so yes. not only are the victims themselves gone but also locals who really had nothing to do with it are also being killed uh, or executed just for crimes they didn't commit mm-hmm. oh and they're hiding in a cave there's something special about the cave matthew because this cave is underwater part of the day. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. I wasn't oh sure if that's where you were going, but that's one of the reasons it was so hard to find is because when the tide came in, um, and, and I can show you a couple of examples of that in a moment. But uh, yeah, I think I uh, was born in those conditions. Well, it, because it, it rose up just after the water. Yeah, so like, the, yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, you could, you could go into the cave and then it kind of went up. So when it was covered in water, the inside of the cave was still safe. So just pretty far, far back. But uh, yeah, so he was born near Edinburgh. East yeah, Lothian, which is, I, if I remember Lothian, correctly, yeah. pretty, well, it's, it's uh, not too far. East Lothian, which is east of Edinburgh. Isn't the it's, location it's, it's, it's of the caves disputed, though? Yes, yes. Well, wildly disputed. We're going to get into that. Yeah, yeah we're going to get into that. So let's, let's go back out here. Now, if you go to Google Maps, and you put in this particular address, it will say Sawney Beans Cave in really? Google Maps. Okay. Yeah. And whatever well, you zoom says in on it, it must be true. No, sorry. <laughs> exactly. So you zoom in on it, and it's actually a house. So I'm not so sure that that's correct. Uh, well, it's heavily, I I it's a big part of tourism lit now and tourism. So there, there could be a gift shop oh, there. I'd stop well, and ask. Sorry. <laughs> but you no, don't need a cafe, though. There, there actually is a cave that's in this this area here um and it's got a plaque and everything now now a lot of people were swear that this is sonny beans cave and i'm i'm gonna just gonna show real quick here uh let's hop back it doesn't over to this. look like a, like there are many many caves around there it looks like it's coastal and beach and but there's a, a plaque in this area and it says uh, uh snib scott's cave now, the thing is, is there's actually a bricked up door um, over the, the very uh, entrance of the cave that Snib Scott put there. And so that's why they call it Snib Scott's cave. They're, they're saying that he did it to kind of protect, you know, anyone from going in and hurting themselves in this horrible place. 
So I don't know if that's true or not. Okay. One version of the legend is that the cave was uh, blown up or the entrance was blown up. So, yeah, the cave could be anywhere. We actually just don't know where it is, but there's several spots. And I think you could find any cave along this uh, coastline and you could say it's the one because they are fairly the cave systems are fairly extensive back through here. So but those are the, the two most popular locations that I could find. But who was now, this? I, so we can go back for a second to this Scott guy. Who was this? Uh, you know, one of the the caves that is attributed to Sawney Bean. Who who was he? He was just a. Well, he was a hermit. That, yeah, that he's, he was like an early twentieth century hermit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I saw some pictures of that. Also, the yeah. uh, the, the, the association of Benet Head and Ballantrae, which is the the Ballantrae is the and I apologize to all our Scottish listeners if I'm just absolutely slaughtering this. Uh, uh, you are. And then uh, Benane Head is the cave about three and a half miles north of Ballantrae. But that came from a fictional story called The Gray Man written in 1896. And up until that point, it wasn't really specified where the cave was. And that novel was published as fiction but it became so popular that everybody started assuming that it was really the location, which I find fascinating. Uh, very much like the scripted ideas we talk about where fiction pushes folklore into interesting directions. So uh, again, right. we'll, we'll put notes about that in there, but yeah, interesting. It just it went from being in a book to being accepted wisdom that that is what the, the case, right? So, which right. is yeah, what happens. And this is an interesting uh, work of arts and, we kept seeing this being attributed to Sawney Bean as though this was you know, a, a picture or a depiction of his family and you know, their their meals and celebrations. They're, they're enjoying on a spittle or like they've got like the they've got a barbecue going. I recognize the barbecue. It's difficult to see. Yeah. I know Matt's yeah. looked into it, so I'm keen to hear what he has to say. But when yeah. I took a look at it last night, I thought it was interesting because it looked more like some kind of tribal artwork. It looked like there were uh, people who were, were wearing. Uh, I think it was a fellow who was wearing some kind of jewelry made of bones or something. Uh, but it looked to me like it was a representation of like a colonial representation of uh, the, the English going into a country and subjugating the, the natives and who, who were just brutal savages uh, who would eat people. So I'm curious to find out what this was actually a depiction of. It is a depiction of the cannibals in Brazil. Ah, so basically, but, <laughs> okay, okay. By the, the, the Portuguese, uh, this is how the Portuguese viewed the natives of Brazil. And it is a Portuguese artist. Uh, and it was done uh, 1500 and something. I can't uh, remember exactly. Uh, we can have okay, that. So it's got nothing to do with the Sony beans. Nothing to do with Sony beans. Totally different recipes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different spices. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, they are much more spicy. Uh, but I wonder but, if there is uh, still a link, though, between this depiction, which is being attributed to Sawney Bean, and maybe the way that the English saw the Scottish uh, and, and why they were written about as, as being such brutes and such savages. Actually, that's interesting because you're, you're, what you're, you're pointing out is that the original narratives were written in London by British people about the Scots, who, as we discussed with the royalty issues, it wasn't a unified, it wasn't a United Kingdom yet. <laughs> so no. it was, uh, that, that was a ways away. And, and I'm not an expert in that history, but I did find it interesting. The idea that maybe 
it might have been written as uh, derogatory, but I don't think, I mean, I guess after all my reading, it feels more like it's not that it's necessarily anti-Scottish. It's more like, I've got this awesome story about these crazy rednecks that are cannibal inbred people. I need to put it somewhere rural. Right. (laughs) It can't be in England because that's not rural enough. Let's push it a little further north. They were pretty brutal, you know, toward the Scots. And um, I'm sorry, Karen, you go ahead. Oh, and and the Irish and the Welsh. Yeah. So for for quite some time, they've looked down on other uh, parts of the United Kingdom. Apparently Um, still in in, in many ways, but yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. And Matt, you found out something interesting about uh, Sawney as a name. Well, yeah, the name Sawney does get used a lot in in, during that time to kind of make fun of the the scottish and um it's it's kind of interesting it's it's usually with with someone it started off anyway with someone with the first name of alexander which um was uh actually uh alistair uh as well and um the uh the scottish gaelic version of that i believe was uh alice jav and uh yeah thank you Um, (laughs) and so that that kind of ended up being seen as sawney and then uh, they started making that like this cartoonish. It's you know very much you know, like you might hear people in New York say Italian people are Guido, right? It's, it's a real name, yeah. but it's being used yeah. as a a, a, a single oh, like name, like a Karen, right? Or like yeah. a Karen. Thanks, Karen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think names have always been used uh, to to uh, label stereotypes, and so it, it's really sounding to me like that was a. A stereotype of a, a savage, uh, primitive Scottish person. In, in the Newgate calendar, they have a ton of stories about all these different, you know, villains. And uh, we have uh, here. Uh, I'll just read you really quickly. They have a, uh, a a British guy, and they call him Alistair. Interestingly enough, and then they have the Scottish guy Sawney Bean, and then they have the Scottish guy Sawney Cunningham, and it you know it does go on and on. Sawney Douglas. So it is just something they they call them. So it's not even a real name in a sense. It's more of a, an insult. So yeah. that, that does make it interesting. Well, I did. I, it, it, around the same time those other chat books came out in the 1730s, 1740s, there was another book. And it's almost identical, but it's called The History of John Gregg and His Family of Robbers and Murderers. And he that story is set in Devon. But otherwise, it's a complete ripoff. And in fact, in the story itself, I guess a lot of the geography doesn't actually make sense because they were basically just saying, well, I can't put it there. I'll move it down here. I'll, well, I'll move that over there. But like, like they didn't have a really clear picture of geography and they had a copy of a book they were ripping off. It's copyrights were different back then. So, yeah. 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 They had uh, um, the, the story of uh, Christy uh, Cleek was another one that was almost identical. So it is interesting that uh, there was a lot of this. And, and the, the Newgate calendar only wanted to exist for the purpose of scaring kids um, into doing the right thing and to the, the political side of things of making anyone that wasn't, uh, you know, from uh, England to be, you know, made out to be a savage. With the Hills Have Eyes, we, we know what happened to the, the cannibal family. What happened with the, the Bean family? Then what was the, according to folklore, what was the, the, the end of the story? Well, you, I, well there are several variations. <laughs> right. Well, I was going to say, the, uh, what happens is a, a, a couple 
is coming from a fair and they are assaulted by the bean clan, but they get the wife, but the husband turns out to have cool fighting skills and a weapon. And he manages to hold them off long enough that other people traveling from the fair are coming. The beans grab the wife, leave and head away. The coming other people help him and they get help and they go and get like the local magistrate or sheriff or whatever. And they eventually end up getting the king and an army of people to go invade the cave, pull the family out. They take it back to Edinburgh and then they don't have a trial. They kill all of them, including the children. And there's a reason for that, because in the folklore, anyone who has tasted human flesh ever, well, you got that. You got to have it. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. It's like anyway. a, yeah, like a creature tasting blood. Yes. Yeah. Once they get well, they the call taste. It long, they so, call it long pork. That's right. Long pig. They, but they do say that like they had other examples in folklore where a child had been saved from a cannibal family like, and then goes on to when they get to their teenage, like, you know what I could really go for right now? Man, barbecue. Right. So, yep. yeah. So, chunk of ass would be yeah. great. And I mean, and they um, don't just kill them either. They burn the women on a pyre and they basically they, they uh, castrate all the men and then draw and quarter them, uh, if I remember correctly. So, well, they, they cut off their hands and feet and yeah. let them bleed to death. But um, without their without their winkies, so yeah. yes, yes, their 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 winkies are, and the women had to watch that before they were then burned. So it is interesting, but you know, going back to the whole fight in in the you know, oh, we didn't uh, mention with, they, they were so inbred. There's like forty eight of them. Okay, there's a mm-hmm. lot. <laughs> there's kids and grandkids. So yeah, that's a that's a lot. So yeah, yeah, and so there's a whole bunch of them against this one guy. So I don't care how good your fighting skills are. I'm not well, I have to assume that they they didn't bring the whole 48 out, right? Yeah, no, that would not work. So <laughs> yeah. whenever the the, the bean that took the, the, they did the Zerg rush of beans, right? So <laughs> I remember Wes Craven in this uh, the documentary that we watched. He was talking about how he thought, uh, and I think that was the inspiration for the, the end of the film with the the the, the regular family, the average family, uh, turning and, and becoming what they, they loathed and, and this other family, the, the cannibals who attacked him, who'd attacked them. He was talking about how when he looked into the history of the Sawney Bean story, how he thought it was just brutal that uh, they had this family were a pack of cannibals and then that the, the government had come in and had treated them pretty much in the same way with all of these you know, cruel and unusual punishments. And uh, I just have to say from my understanding of English history that that's not what they would have done Things like hanging and drawing and quartering, that was usually reserved for traitors to the king. And yeah. uh, usually usually people would be hanged for something like that. People wouldn't be burnt for something like that either. That would usually be the lot of maybe witches earlier oh, on. Black uh, Agnes was alleged to be a witch, although I don't yeah, so. But then I think by that point that was really a, a, a punishment for blasphemy. So yeah. it just doesn't doesn't ring true to me and i think at this point too again it depends what era you're talking about but uh james would have then been the the king of england so i don't think he would have even been in scotland then he was the king of england and scotland um after elizabeth the first died so yeah it, it just the, the history well, he doesn't was the, he was the king of scotland first and that's when this took place was during his reign just as the king of scotland 
Okay, um, but even then, I think you're right. I don't. Heard there's some crossover, and sometimes it was yeah. in the, the early 17th century, and so by that point, he would have been in in England. Uh, so the it's, difficult it's, part is the dates aren't the, the dates aren't clear. So you're absolutely right. You and know, that, so, uh, discussing with Matt too, just how intricate records were by this point. I've I've looked at records most of functions that Henry VIII held, and and there would be a record of the cost of half of a lemon that they used in some big celebration. So it just seems to me that there would be a lot of solid evidence to back up this story if it had actually happened. It really seems like it's it's legend and folklore and some kind of, you know, beware, be careful, don't do this kind of thing. This is, you know, a cautionary tale. It, uh, it just doesn't doesn't seem to add up. As, as interesting of a story as it is, it just seems like there are so many versions of it. It just doesn't ring true to me. Right, right. I, I think yeah. it's a very, yeah. it's hard to prove a negative, but we don't have any records of a thousand people going missing. We don't have any rest records of this gigantic 48-person massacre. Well, I mean, the population was so much smaller than a thousand people disappearing. That would yeah. have been huge. Yeah, yeah. And also well, I mean, and think on, about, on the map here, uh, I've got it kind of focused in on the town of Leith where the, the executions took place. It, it looks beautiful there, but yeah, so this this is where it supposedly took place, and I'm not sure my guess uh, would be that it took place here somewhere. But uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to look and kind of see these these places where it supposedly happened, and yet there's no records of any of it. It's just there's nothing. And to give you some context, it, around the same time as this allegedly happened, you got Peter Stump, the alleged werewolf. We've talked about People before. Court records of that. Yeah, and he got killed. One guy got killed. And there were wood cuts and celebratory images around his death. So I, I can't even imagine if someone had killed a thousand people, what that would be like. So, so family of absolutely. That's- yeah, yeah. So big, big, big pile of unlikeliness here. All right. Well, we've run out of time, I, I, unbelievably. But I, I, I did enjoy talking about this. I loved all the research. Thanks so much for your work on this too, Matthew, Karen, and the graphics. So. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a great legend. I mean, it's a ghastly legend, but it's very interesting. And the movie, I mean, it's certainly, if it didn't, if it didn't happen, it's inspired a, a, a classic movie. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, really helped Michael Berryman's career, and that's always good. So, yeah. Yeah. Ah, all right. Well, uh, I'm going to say uh, be sure to follow us on, well, like yes. us here, subscribe right. to our feed, uh, follow us on yeah. patreon.com forward slash monster talk. You can support us there. Uh, and we really appreciate you tuning in. Thank you so much. And, and, and one, one other thing before we go comment and, and uh, talk about other uh, movies you want us to cover in this sense based on a true story. Yeah. And uh, we'll get to all that we can. Monster talk. You just heard Blake Smith, Karen Stolzno, and her husband Matt Baxter discussing the 1977 Wes Craven film, The Hills Have Eyes, and the underlying legend of Sawny Bean, the Scottish cannibal. We hope you'll check out the rest of our series on youtube.com forward slash monster talk, where you can find many other episodes of this series as well as our ongoing feature, Monster Talk Live. Thanks for your patience while I recover from COVID, and thanks to our patrons who help make this show financially viable. You can join them at patreon.com forward slash monster talk for as little as $3 a month. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And as always, and especially right now, thank you so much for listening, supporting our show, giving us positive reviews, and just being a part of the Monster Talk family. We truly appreciate it.
This has been a Monster House presentation.